You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. Are you ready to talk big money? My budget is about investing in America and all of America, including places and people and folks who've been forgotten. What does this budget do? Raise more taxes, spends more money, creates probably the biggest government we've ever seen in the history of the United States. Today, we have so much to get to, a big budget, new job numbers, a fight over local democracy here in D.C., in Texas, another fight for reproductive health, and in Georgia, a local legal battle that could have national consequences. Joining us for the domestic hour of the Roundup is Anita Kumar. She's the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Also with us for the first time is Megan Scully. She's Congress editor at Bloomberg News. And Steve Clemens. He's an editor-at-large for Semaphore. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's start with news that dropped Thursday. The White House released President Joe Biden's budget proposal for the 2024 fiscal year. All told, it's a nearly $7 trillion plan. The administration says the plan would bring down costs for families, decrease deficits, and increase taxes on corporations and the wealthy. But since Congress controls the power of the purse and Republicans control the House of Representatives, everyone knows this plan is already DOA. Megan, what's in this budget? Sure. So as you said, the budget's just shy of $7 trillion. It includes $5.5 trillion in tax increases that Republicans are already positioning themselves to resist. Um, And it also increases the budget by about $77 billion. Republicans, on the contrary, want to see cuts of about $150 billion. As always, the president's budget is a messaging document um, and a wish list. This year, though, it is particularly interesting because it's an opening salvo in these fiscal cliff negotiations in which Republicans want to extract deep spending cuts uh, to raise the debt ceiling, which we're going to hit sometime this summer. Steve, as Megan just said there, the, the budget is a messaging document. So we're getting a sense of the messaging from President Biden. But what about from Republicans? Well, I think uh, it is for Republicans an opportunity to say that you know, that, that spending is out of control, that the debt uh, is above $31 trillion, and that they are, you know, looking at, you know, the, the, the fiscal fragility out there is something that they want to say the Democrats want to, you know, raise taxes and spend more. And to a certain degree, you know, there's, there's solvency in that argument. You know, while it's an enormous proposal, uh, it's dead on arrival. You know, they say the president's proposed and the Congress disposes, uh, and that's what will happen here. But what's really interesting to me about the proposal is it takes a page out of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was really put together by Senator Joe Manchin that made major investments in energy security, you know, both fossil fuels and renewables, but it, but it dedicated about $300 billion to deficit reduction. And President Biden is also saying... I'm for deficit reduction, and about $3 trillion of this bill would be dedicated to deficit reduction. The Republicans aren't going to buy that, but it, but I think as Megan said appropriately, this is really part of the larger ecosystem of debate about spending uh, and the debt limit. So, Anita, what pressure is on Republicans now to, to come up with their own specifics? Yeah, a lot of pressure, really. Um, and it's really on the speaker as the leader of that party in the House and, and what he's going to do next. You know, Republicans, when they came into office in, in the House, when they got the very slim majority they have, they, you know, basically talked about they, that they were there to rein in federal spending. Not the only thing they campaigned on, but that was one of the big ones. 
And, uh, you know, they've said that they're not going to go along with this. We haven't seen their specifics yet. In fact, you, you heard the president sort of saying, you know, show me what, what you've got. You know, show me what your plan is. Let's, set, let's sit down and talk about it. So there's some pressure to produce something. But what the Speaker and the Republican Party in the House are facing is that they are, you know, they disagree. Um, you know, just like the Democratic Party is has their uh, different sides, the, the Republicans do as well. There are some that want to maintain or increase military spending. Uh, that means they would have to cut in other areas, d- domestic programs, either, you know, even these entitlements. Then there are others that are, you know, don't want to cut Medicare and Social Security. And so, uh, you know, they they don't know exactly what they want to do. And here is the speaker who, if you'll recall, uh, you know, had a tough time getting elected to this position, trying to bring all that together and and face the Democrats and face the president. So there's a lot going on here, and it's a it's a test for him and his leadership as uh, you know as he goes forward. Well, go ahead, man. What's interesting here, um, as Anita pointed out, you know, some entitlement programs, Medicare, Social Security. Last year, Republicans kind of dipped their toe in the water and mentioned possible changes to these programs. It quickly, quickly backfired. And so now those programs are, are off the table, Speaker McCarthy has said, and, and as have others in the caucus. Um, so they're really kind of confined this debate to a, 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 a spending versus taxes debate. Um, and, and that's really what we're going to see play out here in the next few months. Well, we got this question from Mike who says, how often are president's budgets passed? Megan, what can you tell us? Is there ever a time when a president says, this is the budget I want, and Congress just says, yes, go right ahead? Never. Um, Obviously, there are portions of the president's budget that get adopted by Congress. Um, You know, specific programs, you know, maybe a a weapon system gets exactly what the president wants, or a social program gets exactly what the president wants. But by and large, Congress always, always finds ways to tinker around the edges at the very least, even when the president's party controls both chambers of Congress. Well, the New York Times was the first to report this week that the Biden administration is considering restarting the policy that detains migrants who enter the country illegally with their children. President Biden stopped the family detention policy shortly after he took office. CNN's Christiane Amanpour asked the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, if these reports were true. No decision has been made with respect to the detention of families. Do you think it's a good idea? One thing, Christiane, that I promote in this department is to put all options on the table. Great, good, bad, terrible. Let us discuss them, and many will be left on the cutting room floor, but the best ideas blossom from open and candid dialogue and really just a a robust discussion of alternatives. Now, Steve, we talked about some of the internal stresses among Republicans as it's related to the budget, but what internal stresses and concerns is this issue causing for Democrats? Well, this is a huge reversal of the Biden administration on something they objected to or Democrats objected to greatly during the Trump administration. You know, pictures of inhumane conditions of uh, detention centers at the border, uh, which led in part to the separation of families and and children from families, and that these uh, detention centers uh, were looked at as vile and inhuman. And the fact that uh, the Secretary of uh, Homeland Security is saying that even terrible ideas like this are, you know, potentially uh, part of the picture is 
is you know a staggering change, and I and I think it's going to be uh, uh, something that Democrats themselves wrestle over. What's really interesting is how some in the administration have framed this as trying to be a deterrent. Uh, to families that once they see, you know, that right now they're talking about a 20-day detention, even though uh, currently under ICE the average detention is usually about 37 days. But let's just give them that and say they're going to have 20-day detention. People in the administration are saying that will help deter families from coming across the border. But what they fear will happen is that families will send their children across the border because children are dealt with differently. And you get back into the same dynamic of children being separated from families and the question of what happens to them and the welfare of those children uh, along the way. And we even had during the uh, Obama administration in 2014 detention centers of this of this sort enacted uh, and and closed down because of conditions. So it's, it's a remarkable change for the Biden administration about what to do with surging uh, immigrants and migration at the border um, and not having the wherewithal for these asylum cases or migration cases to deal with them. And, and most people look at it as, you know, a, a, you know, a reopening of an awful Pandora's box. Anita, Axios reports that the number of migrants and asylum seekers who attempted to cross the border in January, it was down 40 percent compared to the previous month. Do we know what led to that decrease? Yeah, I mean, there's generally a seasonal uh, change. So things have, you know, uh, the numbers have historically dipped in January due to the holiday season and colder temperatures. But what the administration is saying is that the drop uh, actually was because, well, they're taking credit because of some new programs or revamp programs. In particular, they're talking about uh, a new program that the United States is allowing up to 30,000 migrants from four particular countries to be able to come in the into the U.S. on a monthly basis if they have uh, a, a sponsor. And so those countries are Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and more recently, Venezuela. So obviously, if those uh, people are coming in through this program, those numbers are going to dip. What we don't know is, will that continue or not? Um, we are expecting when uh, some changes happen in May for those numbers to go back up in some fashion. Well, we got this comment from Aaron who says, we need immigration reform so badly. All of this just reinforces the reality that our legal immigration system is badly, badly broken. Up next, a bill passed by the D.C. Council was nixed by Congress and the White House. It's the first time that's happened in more than three decades. We get to that story and more after the break. Let's get back to the news roundup and turn now to D.C. Senators on Wednesday overwhelmingly voted to block the District of Columbia's updated criminal code from becoming law. It marked the first time in more than three decades that a bill passed by the D.C. Council was nixed by Congress and the White House. 33 Senate Democrats joined Republicans to block the crime bill. New Jersey's Cory Booker was not one of them. By rejecting this law today, by voting against this, people in the name of being tough on crime are actually the people that are preventing a city from better protecting itself, better protecting its children, its sexual assault victims, its police officers. I mean, think about that. I have not in my 10 years in the Senate seen such a distortion of facts, such a misrepresentation of what something is. Now, Megan, we know D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, was not on board with this new crime bill. Where was the tension between Bowser and the D.C. Council? 
Sure. So Bowser thought that the bill went too far, particularly when it came to areas of violent crime, uh, such as carjackings. It, it, it decreased the penalties. And, you know, in a city that has had over 100 carjackings already this year, um, and at a time when crime, you know, across the country is high and has been um, you know, a topic of national discussion, she felt it wasn't the right time to proceed here. So she actually vetoed the bill and then was overridden by the D.C. Council. Uh, I think all but one council member uh, voted to override the mayor's, uh, the mayor's veto. Um, so it, that seemed to be a done deal. The, the bill was going to become law. Uh, But then Congress intervened because D.C., of course, is not a state. It's a federal district. And Congress has a lot more sway over what happens in D.C. than it does in, say, New York or San Francisco. So uh, so Republicans stepped in and and the House passed, you know, a bill to uh, to overturn what the D.C. Council um, stood by. Then the Senate got involved. And by a weird twist of Senate rules, they had to proceed with a vote on this. And it was a simple majority. Um, and then, you know, the president got involved and said that he would actually vote to to overturn this this D.C. law. And it became this whole big, uh, messy politics playing out sort of before our eyes, both over crime and over D.C. statehood and home rule. Mm, yeah. So I, I want us to, to pull the thread on a couple of things there. And the first is that that statehood question. And Anita, this question's been around for a while. What does it say about D.C. and its ability to rule itself? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really such an issue here in our, our D.C. metro area. I mean, it's really not just D.C. folks in Virginia and Maryland who, you know, we have people moving back and forth. There has been so much of a push to get statehood uh, for D.C., um, and it just hasn't had enough traction in Congress uh, really to get anywhere. Uh, largely, you've had Republicans oppose it. Um, you've had some Democrats, I think, who just haven't really uh, weighed in. Um, I believe President Obama was supportive, and that was a big deal during his term. Uh, or maybe he put some license plates on his uh, on the on the presidential limousine or something. But it just really hasn't gotten anywhere. And this is what this all goes back to: Can DC rule itself, or does it have to go with what Congress says? Well, Stephen, then there's this other uh, backdrop, which is around sentencing and whether the sentencing requirements we currently have, whether they are appropriate, and who is disproportionately affected by these longer sentences. Give us that context. Well, I think it's clear, and lots of studies have shown, that uh, sentencing, not only in Washington, D.C., and many urban places in the world, is has, has disproportionately affected uh, people of color, and particularly uh, young black men who have been incarcerated and sentenced at rates very disproportionately and quite out of whack with uh, uh, white men, and it is primarily men that have, have, have been this, but, the, but there are other cases as well. But I think that the broad side of this is, and you know, and the broad, you know, question of home rule and D.C. be able to, to run its own affairs, there were alliances. 33 Democratic senators broke ranks with uh, their party and supported the, the, the repeal of these um, rollbacks of, you know, of sentencing guidelines and, and or sentencing requirements, I should say. Um, and I think one of the interesting things in the criticisms here is part of it is about 
the content and substance of what DC was choosing to do. Muriel Bowser, of course, agreed with the revo revocation of these DC sentencing guidelines as well and had opposed what her city council was trying to do. But what was interesting is a different dynamic, which is a political one between the White House and the speaker, uh, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, Hakeem Jeffries, who I hear was not given uh, early word that this was going on. And here, you know, Hakeem Jeffries had held his caucus together, you know, through the stress and strain of, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy coming on board and all the deals that were going on. But this has divided their caucus now. Democrats are divided over exactly these issues. Well, we got this question from Michael who says, if the D.C. Council can't make laws to govern themselves, then what's the point of the council? Before we move on, anything to add, Megan? Well, one of the things that I found particularly interesting in the last few days is that you had even local lawmakers to D.C., um, senators from Maryland and senators from Virginia, disagreeing over how this should be handled, which I think just goes to show you how fraught this conversation over crime has become. And uh, and it, it, in a lot of ways within the Democratic Party, superseded this issue of D.C. statehood. Well, let's turn now to some cracks in the GOP. Leaders of the party are split over Fox News' coverage of the January 6th insurrection attempt at the Capitol. On Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy defended his decision to give Fox host Tucker Carlson exclusive access to over 400,000 hours of security footage from the attack. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has a different take. With regard to the uh, presentation on Fox News last night, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the Capitol Police about what happened on January 6th. McConnell is referring to a letter from Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger released on Thursday. In it, Manger accuses Tucker Carlson of spouting, quote, offensive and misleading conclusions about January 6th. We should also mention that Senator McConnell fell at a hotel dinner on Thursday and is being treated for a concussion. He's expected to remain in the hospital for a few days. That's according to his spokesperson. Anita, what does this split between McConnell and McCarthy reveal about some of the divisions in the Republican Party? Yeah, it's it's something we've been seeing uh, well, obviously, since January 6th, um, you know, we we have seen some in the Republican Party, some of the people particularly who were there um, in the building um, and on around the grounds, you know, really take this seriously, talk about what had happened that day, fault, you know, President, former President Trump. And we have seen others really, you know, diminish it, just say it wasn't as big of a deal as people are making, you know, saying some of the deaths weren't attributable to what happened that day. And so, you know, I shouldn't say it's just people that were in the building and not in the building, because we obviously, Kevin McCarthy was there, uh, Mitch McConnell was there. There are a lot of Republicans that were there that now many uh, weeks and months and even days later, they were saying, you know, it didn't happen the way it was. And so we've seen the split. We've seen this larger split. I, I think it has to do with not only the insurrection, but also President Trump, uh, you know, who won the 2020 election. It's all wrapped up together. And we've been seeing that, you know, this this entire time since the, since the election. You know, I'll say for, for Mitch McConnell's comments there, that was not surprising. He has been, you know, very uh, when asked and, and when he's talked about it, he has been very clear uh, about what happened that day, what he thinks happened that day, uh, what he thinks was at fault and who he thinks was at fault. And so none of these things is surprising. But but going back to, you know, the two leaders of the House and Senate on the Republican side, right, it does show uh, this split. And it did show that, 
you know, basically Fox News has access to all these. They selectively chose what to air and and obviously had their own commentary about what they did air. Well, and not only were the Republicans there on January 6th, 147 of them went on to vote to overturn the election results. Uh, Steve, Fox News is currently embroiled in a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit brought by Dominion Voting Systems. Uh, More documents released this week suggest the network knowingly spread misinformation about January 6th and the 2020 election. Text messages from Tucker Carlson reveal that even he disagrees with his own on-air remarks. How is McCarthy defending the access he gave to Fox with this information coming out? Well, I think that he is <laughs> not responding a lot to people in their base. He's been basically saying eventually other networks um, will get access to all of the documents. Um, you and I discussed this before that I thought it would go that direction. But, you know, I think as, as Anita just said, there's a lot of, uh, you know, frustration, you know, across the board with a a very, very slanted and tilted take on the many, many hours of real video that they have. And I, I you know, I think that, you know, these the the revelation of I mean the 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 totality of communications internally, Laura Ingraham, Tucker Carlson, Rupert Murdoch, many other players inside that very clearly say that they, you know, understood that the uh, Earth was round and uh, rotated around the sun, and that they they saw results in the election, and then went out on TV and said exactly the opposite in many ways, and cast out on on the Dominion voting systems. Um, and I think it's raised a lot of questions about what the role of Fox News is in the world and how they've seen it, and it's created. You know, I should also add that um, while this is going to get uh, a hearing in about two weeks in Delaware before a Delaware state judge, and he'll have to make a decision on whether a sub- summary judge right then or whether it would go on uh, to a trial is that you've got uh, Newsmax, One American News Network, others have also been sued watching this unfold. And so there may be, you know, many more twists and turns in this, um, this interesting story. The Republican-led Georgia state legislature passed a bill that would create a committee with the power to remove prosecutors and district attorneys from their posts. It passed with a bipartisan 98-75 to vote. But some Democrats, like Georgia State Senator Nabala Islam, are questioning the timing. Islam told CNN, quote, It's not coincidental SB 92 is introduced at a time when minority district attorneys now represent more than 50 percent of the Georgia population, end quote. She also mentioned the investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election led by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Let's turn now to Louisville. In 2020, Louisville police officers shot and killed Breonna Taylor in her home using a no-knock warrant. The Department of Justice says the warrant was based off of false information. Taylor's death prompted a lengthy DOJ investigation into the Louisville Police Department. And on Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the findings. Some officers have demonstrated disrespect for the people they are sworn to protect. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal, and boy. This conduct is unacceptable. Garland said police officers have routinely violated the constitutional, civil, and disability rights of Louisville residents. Megan, what was your reaction to the report? Just listening to that clip again, um, you know, really 
took me back, um, and it wasn't the first time I, I heard those statements. Um, this report is 90 pages of just brutal, brutal information on you know what had happened within the Louisville Police Department in recent years and really showed that Breonna Taylor was just a symptom of broader problems within within the department itself. And it also feeds into other Justice Department investigations into into other cities, um, Minneapolis, New York, Oklahoma City, um, Phoenix, and, and there are a handful of others that, um, that the DOJ is looking into how the police department is, is handling itself. Now, Steve, the consent decree will have to be negotiated. Um, there'll have to be agreements around who reinforces uh, that consent decree, what benchmarks there are for changes in the Louisville Police Department. How long of a process is this? It's a long process and it's going to be contentious because we have seen in case after case um, after these killings, you know, one of the the things that Merrick Garland did, the attorney general, is took a lot of the restrictions that had been placed on consent degrees. These consent degrees are court-enforced legal deals. They're basically um, coming into departments, uh, and we can think of many around the country, where similar killings, particularly uh, 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 involving racism, but, uh, you know, other broadsides, uh, uh, questions of police abuse. And consent degrees used to be part of the ecosystem of, of correcting these departments. Now they're coming back in part because of Merrick Garland's um, action. And we're going to see a negotiation and discussion about how the Louisville Police Department is going to be put on a controlled track of demonstrating a very clear reform. And that can mean many things. It can mean firings. It can mean training. It can mean uh, benchmarks on results. It can, it can mean reorganization. And again, this is a story we've dealt with for a long time, but the police unions have been very resistant at being, you know, uh, uh, willing to compromise and to work constructively on a lot of these issues. Perhaps that will change now. But but you're right, the benchmarks matter and the legal processes that are going to unfold will take time. But it, it does put, it sends a message to other departments around the country that they can be put on a track with significant oversight of their entire um, operation and how they run with, with major consequences for those departments should they not comply. Well, and briefly, Anita, how does a city like Louisville restore faith in an organization that's branded as racist and corrupt? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I think they've had some changes already, um, you know, in the police department in the in the last couple of years. Um, I think that the only way forward, probably what uh, what local folks are saying is more changes there and, and really what this negotiation comes up with. But, you know, there have been many other efforts in other cities over the last few decades, Seattle, Baltimore, L.A., Detroit, New Orleans, and they have mixed results. So it's not like they're going to enter into this and everything's going to be fixed. Some things may get done and some things may not. It's a long, hard process. So how do they restore faith? It's, it's going to take a long time. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news, and we'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to the roundup and turn now to Texas. Five women are suing the state of Texas over its almost total abortion ban. Each had pregnancy complications, and each say doctors denied them abortions even when their lives were at risk. My health care team was anguished as they explained there was nothing they could do because of Texas's anti-abortion laws, the latest of which, by the way, had taken effect two days after my water broke. 
It meant that even though we would, with complete certainty, lose Willow, my doctor could not intervene as long as her heart was beating or until I was sick enough for the ethics board at the hospital to consider my life at risk and permit the standard health care I needed at that point, an abortion. So even though I had lost all of my amniotic fluid, something an unborn child simply cannot survive without, we had to wait. I cannot adequately put into words the trauma and despair that comes with waiting to either lose your own life, your child's life, or both. That was Amanda Zorowski speaking at a press conference on Tuesday. She's one of the five women behind the lawsuit. Center for Reproductive Rights President Molly Northrup says the goal of the lawsuit is to clarify that doctors have the right to provide abortion care to patients who need it. Northrup says this is in line with the, quote, correct interpretation of Texas's abortion ban. Anita, what difference could this lawsuit make? Yeah, it's really interesting because obviously since the Supreme Court uh, decision, we've seen a lot of lawsuits, but this one is a little bit different because it's not asking for a for complete change, right? It's not asking to take on this abortion ban completely. It's doing what you said, um, which is, uh, you know, it's asking the court to confirm confirm that the Texas law allows doctors to offer abortion if, in their judgment, the procedure is necessary. And so it, it could, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for some clarification, and, and they may get it. We just don't know yet. It could be that other states and other people in other states uh, will go the same route. You know, I think that there are people that Obviously, they do want that clarification, but there's also some thought that this kind of lawsuit could, um, you know, also just sort of reaffirm sort of how the public feels and get some, um, you know, get some support for this these efforts around the country. Uh, there's public, you know, there's polling that's showing that, um, you know, that people generally support legalized abortion and that there's support there for that. And so I think it could do two things. Obviously, it could clarify that Texas law. Uh, it could go into other states. Other states could, people could file these suits, but also could impact public opinion and get some support. Well, Megan, go ahead. I think the other thing that this lawsuit does is it, it really takes the hypothetical mm-hmm. arguments that were made at the beginning um, when this law was first enacted in 2021, and it, it puts them out there. You have these five women and, and, and several physicians as well explaining how this law has affected them um, in, in pretty dire circumstances as, as, as the, the, the woman that, whose clip you played. Um, and it, it really sort of forces the discussion um, – Politically, but also from a from a medical standpoint as well, and from an ethical standpoint mm-hmm. for doctors, if if their decision to provide care to their patients is dependent on this this you know bureaucracy saying okay it's okay now, while their patient is getting sicker and sicker, that's got to raise some ethical concerns for people working in the medical field, Steve. I'm also curious about just the language of the Texas bill and the lack of clarity around how it would be applied. Because I remember we did a series of shows when this bill was was being discussed, and the number of people who didn't understand that abortion is the medical term for 
the treatment you receive when you miscarry. And so in, in people's mind, there was this line behind an elective abortion and an abortion that is that you have to have because you've you've miscarried. I mean, how much thought was really put into the language of this bill when it was created? Not enough. I mean, Jen, what you're pointing to is that you've got um, debates going on in this country that involve, you know, deeply held values that contenders on different sides of this debate hold. But there are interpretation uh, uh, differences that are oftentimes large enough to drive a, you know, giant truck through. And it's going to lead to many court battles and fights. And the bottom line, given what we see in Texas, but not only in Texas, but all around the country and the abortion field is we're going to have unhealth, uneven health for women in this country, health access, health outcomes. And we're going to have uh, uh, a, a wall, essentially, between parts of the nation that have solidified and consistent and, and, and provided these rights uh, in, in clear terms to women and those places that are taking them and there are going to be lots of shades of gray. And, you know, I think, you know, you can ask whatever ethical concerns are, but that is the function of what happened with the reversal of Roe v. Wade in, in the Supreme Court. We are going to have an unevenness in one of the very core um, health, bedrock health issues um, of women in this country. And part of the bill in Texas is going to worsen that, in my view, because it it, it doesn't come into this. And, and I all should say that I think that when we see bills like this, the, the purpose was not to get clarity. And, and, and I think we need to understand that there are a lot of players in this that want that obfuscation and uncertainty and gray area when it comes to women's reproductive rights in all of these states. Well, that takes us to another story. Mifepristone is a medicine commonly used in abortion and miscarriage care. And this week, Walgreens decided it wouldn't distribute the drug in 20 states, including a few where abortion is still legal. And the decision comes after nearly two dozen attorneys general threatened to sue the pharmacy giant if it starts mailing or distributing the abortion pill in their states. Now, Walgreens isn't distributing the pill anywhere yet. They say they're waiting for certification from the Food and Drug Administration. Mifepristone has been FDA approved for abortions since 2000, but it can only be administered by certain pharmacies. Steve, why did Walgreens make this decision? Well, because there are about 13 states that have now outlawed abortion. Other states have pending legislation uh, going after distributors should they uh, distribute abortion um, uh, promoting uh, pharmaceuticals. And so they've decided in these states, again, coming back to the point I just made, where we're going to have some states where there's easy access uh, uh, to mefeprestone and there are going to be states there or not. You know, CVS and Rite Aid have not weighed in on this, but California has already taken action to punish uh, Walgreens for basically robbing a right of women or access uh, to this drug to women uh, in the states that have, that have uh, banned abortion clinics and banned abortion and dropping all, uh, suspending all contracts with, with Walgreens in, in state distribution of drugs. So they're, they're going to be, it's, it's going to be a sort of uh, back and forth and, and, and battle uh, between those states that, that provide um, safe reproductive rights and access for women and those that don't. And these firms that operate across uh, these state boundaries are going to have some tough decisions because you've got laws that are different and we're going to have a patchwork system with companies. And, and we, I think it's an interesting question of should we expect consistent service and access from firms 
given the fact that we have inconsistent laws in the country, but it's an interesting move that California's made, insisting that California will not do business with those companies that do not provide that access and rights to women around the nation. Right, and that contract between California and Con- and uh, Walgreens, it was a $54 million contract, and Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom said the company had, quote, caved to extremists and said the state would leverage our market power to defend the right to choose. We got this comment from Jennifer who says, doctors have once again abdicated leadership. Why are they letting people with no medical training tell them what to do? They're not helpless. Anita, I mean, what position are doctors in states like Texas in right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Ever since the Supreme Court decision and, and some of these state laws went into effect, we've been hearing from a lot of doctors, even hospitals and, and others, saying that they're just kind of in a in a tough position, that they they don't make the laws, but they have to abide by them. And in some cases, uh, the laws are changing. It's confusing. But there are some criticisms of the, of the doctors that they should be able to go out there and, and do what they think is right. You know, in that in the lawsuit we just talked to uh, talked about, it was clear that the the women are suing um, the state and the state officials, and I think the attorney general. But they were not talking about their doctors. They felt that their doctors were not at fault, that the, that it was confusing. And so, you know, there's there's obviously blame to go around. There's criticism. There's questions, as the, as the caller just uh, indicated. But, uh, you know, doctors are being put in a tough position, just as some of these pharmacists are. Anita, the House hearing investigating where COVID originally came from got started on Wednesday. Why is Congress investigating this? This has been obviously an issue since the since the COVID the pandemic started, which which is what is the origin of of the virus? And you know, if you remember during uh, the Trump administration, and even even now, there's there are differing opinions on what it is, and uh, the United States and and other countries have not been able to find out. And so Republicans said, look, uh, Democrats didn't ask those questions when they were in charge. We have the majority. We want to look into what this is. I will say, having seen or heard about the first hearing um, on this issue, I don't think we're likely to find out the answer. It's clear that there was really no new information and that uh, Republicans went back to their talking points, Democrats went back to their talking points, and there was a lot of politics and there was a lot of uh, questioning of of the uh, experts who were there were they good experts? Did they have other things in their background? Why are they even there? Um, you know, there was just a lot of back and forth as con- congressional hearings tend to happen, uh, have, and, and and I don't think we're going to really get to the bottom of it. I saw a headline that Science.org had on, on, and I thought it described it well. They said science takes a backseat to politics in the first House hearing on on the COVID pandemic. So if this is any indication, we're probably not going to hear. Uh, really what's going on or what happened. Well, let's wrap today on the economy. Employers added more than 300,000 jobs in February. That's according to today's report from the Labor Department. Now, that's a slowdown from January, but it's still a strong job growth number. Earlier this week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said if the labor market remains hot, he may have to respond by raising interest rates even higher. process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. 
Now, Steve, the Fed has a balancing act to perform here, reduce interest rates without tipping the economy into a recession. Why is Powell sounding more cautious about the prospect of lower interest rates? Well, we're seeing uh, consumer spending tick up and we're seeing uh, a very tight labor market uh, persist, as you just noted in the in the numbers, and we're not seeing uh, inflation rates de- decline. And I think that, that there's another clip of Jerome Powell basically saying that maybe we really do need to see there'll be negative consequences. Don't remember the exact words. And, you know, when you quote Fed chairs, you should use exact <laughs> words. But, but something saying we need to look at the impact um, and there could be negative impacts of, on the labor, labor levels in this country and unemployment rate as a measure of whether they're going the right direction, which is a really, really uh, a big statement for Powell to make because a lot of people have been suggesting that there might be a soft landing uh, to our high inflation, to these rates coming up, so that we don't see a staggering rise uh, in the level of imp- uh, unemployment in the uh, in the country, because we've we've just got to we we have this weird situation where we've got about 10.4 million open jobs in the country, not enough people out there to fill them. At, you know, in in terms of this, and so if they're looking to dent that, it's going to be a very very big. Uh, rise in rates to curtail economic activity. And that sent a shockwave through the markets and, and basically the economy of people thinking that this may go uh, to 6% or higher than 6% in terms of the Fed funds rate. And just not too long ago, that Fed funds rate was near zero. So I think that is very profound. It's beginning to feel not quite at the same desperate levels as we had with Paul Volcker, who you know drove uh, interest rates up to double-digit levels uh, in the early 1980s. But it's beginning to feel like the Fed is going to get much bolder and stronger than it already has. That's Steve Clemens. He's an editor-at-large for Semaphore. Also with us, Megan Scully, Congress editor at Bloomberg News, and Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Steve, Megan, Anita, thank you. Before we turn to the global edition of the News Roundup, a remembrance. Gary Rossington passed away this week. Gary was the last remaining original member of Leonard Skinnerd. A statement on the band's Facebook page reads, Gary is now with his Skinnerd brothers and family in heaven and playing it pretty like he always does. Born in Florida, Gary wanted to be a baseball player, but eventually found his way to guitar. It was through baseball that he met Ronnie Van Zant and Bob Burns, who formed the original Leonard Skinner. The group soon began playing bars in the Sunshine State, and they were later signed in 1973 in Georgia. The band's first self-titled album, Leonard Skinner, was released the same year with some of the band's most recognizable tunes, such as Gimme Three Steps, Simple Man, and of course... Gary appeared on all of their albums and survived a 1977 plane crash that killed several of his bandmates. He suffered heart problems in recent years, but continued appearing on stage as recently as February. Gary Rossington was 71. We'll be back with the International News Roundup, where we'll talk about some of the biggest news headlines from around the world after this quick break. We have a lot to get into, so stay with us. 
In this edition of the International News Roundup, violence in Tbilisi, Georgia, after a proposed law, protesters say it targets freedom in the country and they accuse Russia of backing it. This is uh, Russia's play, and Putin is um, facing uh, damage in Ukraine, and they want to gain something here. So we are here to protect our country because we don't want to be part of Russia again. And the United States Defense Secretary travels to the Middle East this week, stopping in Egypt, Iraq, and Israel, where tensions continue to escalate ahead of Ramadan and Passover. And I am here as a friend who is deeply committed to the security of the state of Israel. But the United States also remains firmly opposed to any acts that could trigger more insecurity, including settlement expansion and inflammatory rhetoric. And we're especially disturbed by violence by settlers against Palestinians. So we'll continue to oppose actions that could push a two-state solution further out of reach. Lots to unpack this week. With me, Greg Myrie. He's a national security correspondent at NPR and co-author of This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Greg, we appreciate your time. My pleasure, Jen. Also with us, Saleha Mosin, Senior Washington Correspondent at Bloomberg News. Saleha, welcome back. Hi, nice to be here. And with us, Jack Detch. He covers the Pentagon and national security at Foreign Policy. Jack, it's always great to have you. Good to be here, Jen. Let's start in Ukraine. The Zaporizhia nuclear plant lost power on Thursday after a barrage of Russian missiles hit the area. This is the sixth time since Russia's invasion one year ago that Europe's largest nuclear plant has lost power and had to resort to emergency generators. Moscow says it launched missiles on Ukrainian cities in retaliation for an attack in the Russian region of Bryansk last week. Greg, experts worry the plant is on the brink of a nuclear catastrophe. How concerned should we be? Well, whenever you're you're dealing with the largest nuclear power plant in Europe and that it's it's in the middle of an ongoing war, uh, you you have to be concerned. And and as you noted, due to the Russian attacks in the area, the Ukrainian workers at the plant took it off its external power supply and moved it onto the plant's own emergency generators. And so to be clear, the plant was not hit, it was not damaged, but the Russian military has controlled this plant since the early days of the war. Uh, Ukrainian workers are still there, um, to some extent, being held hostage, and they're running it. And and they intentionally have done this now six times, as you noted, switching over to emergency generators as a as a safety precaution. Uh, the generators were in use for 11 hours yesterday, and then they've gone back to the external power supply. But it's it's hugely concerning. The top UN nuclear official Rafael Grossi uh, he said, "quote." Each time we are rolling the, a dice, and if, if we allow this to continue time after time, then one day our luck is going to run out. Hmm. Ukraine's energy minister, Herman Halushchenko, said negotiations with Russian leaders to demilitarize the plant have stalled. Jack, why is Russia holding on to this site so tightly? Russia has actually wanted to try and connect this to the Russian electrical grid, taking that Ukrainian power uh, and giving it to themselves. They, they haven't been successful yet, and, and certainly that's, that's a danger that that could uh, spark new tensions or, or perhaps make the plant more unsafe, as Greg was talking about. 
about. Uh, but this is a really an, an economic mother load for the Ukrainians, the Russians, or, or whoever controls the plant. It's more than 10% of Ukraine's power generating capacity and nearly 50% of its nuclear power capacity. So when you talk about a Ukrainian economy that's already battered uh, as much as, as it is, losing basically a, a third of the economy every month, uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant being online or offline is a huge speed bump uh, for the Ukrainians uh, and their ability to wage war, and, and certainly the Russians recognize that. Well, and Greg, just just ground us a little bit in, in what a catastrophe at this nuclear power plant would mean for the people in the area, for the land. Help us understand. Well, you know, Ukraine uh, suffered the worst uh, nuclear accident uh, with the Chernobyl plant back in 1986. So the Ukrainians uh, know better than anybody what it can mean in terms of devastating an area, just taking it out of commission. Um, this is uh, in, the, in the heartland of, of eastern Ukraine, uh, a big population uh, centers around this plant. Um, and, and the plant, uh, the, even, even though it's offline and not generating electricity, right now, you have to keep cooling the nuclear material. So you you could, even with the plant does not get hit, if it, if it can't, doesn't have a power supply to cool the nuclear material, an accident could happen. It could spew radiation. And, and literally millions of people in eastern Ukraine and beyond would be in danger. We're talking to Greg Myrie, national security correspondent at NPR. Also with us, Jack Detch. He covers the Pentagon and national security at Foreign Policy. And Saleha Mosin, senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. U.S. officials say they reviewed intelligence that suggests a pro-Ukrainian group was responsible for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines last year. The Ukrainian government denies their involvement. Saleha, what does the new intelligence say? Yeah, so what we have here are is a discussion about the Nord Stream attack back in September. These pipelines were ripped apart um, by explosions, and U.S. officials at that time said it was an act of sabotage. There was, it was just not an accident. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community has some new information saying that it was a pro-Ukrainian group that attacked Nord Stream. It is not saying it was the Ukrainian government. It's just saying it's a pro-Ukrainian group. Um, this has been a pretty big mystery. Uh, R- Russia has the ability to carry out an attack underwater, but no clear motive because the Kremlin needs the revenue from these uh, this, these pipelines to finance its war. Uh, Ukraine has a motive. They've long been opposed to Russia's ability to send, sell gas so easily to Europe. Uh, but like I said, Ukrainian government and military officials have been pu- public uh, and frequently and loudly that they have had no rule about this. Uh, U.S. intelligence is not saying whether the attacks were specifically Ukrainian or Russian, but just that they were pro-Ukrainian. It was a pro-Ukrainian group. Well, let's move now to Bakhmut in the eastern part of Ukraine. It's the site of one of the war's bloodiest ongoing battles. Russian forces are making significant gains in taking over the city. On Wednesday, a Russian paramilitary company, Wagner, claimed it controlled the eastern part of Bakhmut. Greg, what do we know about the Wagner group and their involvement in this conflict? Yeah, Jen. Uh, Wagner is this private military group, mercenaries really, and, th- and they're led by a man, Yevgeny Prigozhin. He's an oligarch with a close relationship to the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin. Now, until the past year, Wagner operated in a number of, of countries, but it was a b- bit below the radar. It's really shot to prominence or international prominence in Ukraine. 
<clears throat> Prigozhin is now actively seeking publicity. He's in and around uh, Bakhmut in, in eastern Ukraine in, in military gear, putting videos of himself on social media. Wagner is fighting with a lot of these prison convicts by estimates of, of different intelligence uh, agencies and, and groups. He has maybe 50,000 fighters, 10 are these contract 10,000 are contract mercenaries, uh, 40,000 or so are believed to be uh, these, these Russian prisoners who've been uh, brought into service. But they've suffered huge, huge losses. Uh, Prigozhin is openly criticizing the Russian military. Atta- he's attacked the leadership. He's saying it's not giving him enough ammunition. You really have to step back here for a moment and say uh, Bakhmut is sort of the center of fighting, the center of attention here. And it's, it's clearly part of this obsession of this one man, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who wants to show that he can do something the Russian military hasn't been able to do, which is is conquer a town. How has Wagner and its leaders' relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin evolved over the course of the invasion of Ukraine, Jack? Well, it's it's been a rocky relationship, as Greg mentioned. You sort of have Prigozhin after uh, these towns, Bakhmut and Solodar, uh, two of Ukraine's major natural resource extraction points. Uh, and that's been a huge focal point just historically for the Wagner Group. They, they, they've gone after countries in Africa and the Middle East, places like Mali, Central Afri- African Republic, a, a major diamond repository there uh, to bring revenue back to the Russians. But Prigozhin, of course, just a major critic of how this war has played out tactically, uh, the centralization of military power at the top of the Kremlin. Uh, and that's problematic for him uh, in, in two respects. Uh, first, of course, uh, earning the ire potentially of Putin, but also Putin's allies within the Kremlin, uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, uh, and potentially, of course, uh, the military chief of staff in, in Russia, uh, Valery Zheramasov, potentially opponents uh, to, to Prigozhin. So, so he has to ha- be asking the question, too, um, is, is he sort of running into more adversaries in the Kremlin, and, and is this meteoric rise potentially burning out? Well, on Monday, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin warned not to overstate the potential fall of Bakhmut to Russia. He said, quote, I think it is more of a symbolic value than it is strategic and operational value. So, Leha, what symbolic value does the Battle of Bakhmut have in the larger war? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things to look at here. You know, it's right over the Bakhmutka River, which is uh, a flat land. It's a little bit elevated. So it does make that region vulnerable to uh, rocket fire and other kinds of attack. Before the war, it was 70,000 people who were living there and had a salt mining industry. But really, this is just a show of Ukrainian spirit. If they can fight off the massive manpower, then it shows that the spirit is not broken. And that's what they're trying to show to uh, the Russian forces. More on the war in Ukraine in a few moments with us, Saleha Mosin, senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News, Jack Detch, he covers the Pentagon and national security at Foreign Policy, and Greg Myrie, national security correspondent at NPR. We're watching a story in Germany. Thursday night, several people were killed and some seriously injured in a shooting in the northern city of Hamburg. Local media reports the incident happened at a Kingdom Hall, the worship space for Jehovah's Witnesses. German police say the motive for the attack is unclear.
Now, when Russia invaded Ukraine more than a year ago, some predicted an easy win for the much larger, wealthier Russian military. According to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Russia had five times as many troops and a defense budget 11 times the size of Ukraine's. But the smaller nation has put up a strong defense. Jack, you reported recently on the transformation of the military in Ukraine going back a, a decade. Change accelerated under current President Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, in March 2020, He shook up his country's military. He promoted a general at a two-star post to commander-in-chief, and it was the biggest jump in pecking order the Ukrainian forces had ever seen. How else did Zelensky remake his country's military ahead of Russia's invasion? Well, Jen, this is a military that really went from extremes. In in 2014, the the force was so hollowed out, they couldn't provide meals or blankets to their troops, and they were basically begging the U.S. military, begging the Pentagon uh, for this type of aid. Now we see the Ukrainian military, after Zelensky's reforms, promoting, as you said, Valery Zeluzhny from a two-star post all the way up to, to general of Ukraine's armies. Uh, really as kind of this weird island of misfit toys, right? They've been injected with basically a German military budget uh, into their forces in the past year, Uh, but the army still has equipment from 30 countries. They have tanks from a dozen countries, and you see sort of this this fitful process of learning uh, going on with the Ukrainian forces, just uh, the the amount of creativity that they have. They've built World War II-style bunkers dating back to 2014 uh, to cover up from Russian attacks. They've mastered dispersal tactics in a way that Western forces haven't. But the learning and the rising to to the occasion has really come after 2022. Uh, You've seen the forces master these NATO-style tactics of of mission command that's delegating down really to the the furthest level, uh, the ability uh, to fight with all these different types of weapon systems. But there's still, uh, you know, some breaks in in that chain of learning. We were talking about the fight over Bakhmut, Uh, And we've seen the Ukrainians really forced to send a lot of territorial defenders, fighters without a lot of experience to the front lines. Now, one of the most fascinating conversations I had for this story was with an American military veteran uh, who had shipped off to Kiev, was training Ukrainian forces, getting them ready for this fight in Bakhmut, uh, expecting he would have two weeks, three weeks to train these forces. He's given two days, and and his conclusion after those two days was these forces weren't ready for anything, but, uh, of course, they had to be shipped off to the front. Mm. Uh, Greg, you've been reporting in Ukraine. You're in D.C. right now, but what's your reaction to what we just heard there from Jack about Ukraine's military preparedness? Well, I've, I've certainly heard a lot of the same things. Um, and, and what we're, we're seeing now are the Russians pushing an offensive for the past month or so in the eastern part of Ukraine in the Donbass region, but making only very minimal progress uh, in and around Bakhmut in particular at a huge cost to its uh, fighters and equipment. The Russians, again, seem to be relying on just sort of brute, head-on force, trying to overwhelm Ukraine. And even though you, the Ukrainian defenders might not be experienced, as Jack just noted, they are uh, essentially holding the Russians at bay or allowing only uh, limited advances. And uh, we're widely expecting Ukraine to launch its own offensive pretty soon. With the the Russian forces dug in in the east and in the south, Ukraine is expected to to sort of go between them in the southeast uh, and divide the Russian forces. Now, of course, uh, since we're talking about it here and lots of others are as well, that means the Russians know this very well. 
and are preparing to defend that territory. Uh, and we saw this week the, the U.S. national security and intelligence chiefs go testify on Capitol Hill, and they, like other analysts I've, I've heard from, um, they say that neither side appears to be in, in good position to make a major breakthrough. So we can expect uh, lots of heavy fighting in the spring and the summer, but uh, not clear that either side will be able to make uh, big advances. Greg, I know we have to let you go. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Jen, as always. Well, Jack, what did you come to understand through your reporting about Ukraine's fighting style? Well, I think you, you again, see a lot of this this delegating down, but but not to a fault, right? You still have this this non-commissioned officer corps that's been growing with with the help of the United States, the Lithuanians, the the Brits, um, these these forces that that were really not the officer class. Uh, but it's not clear they're they're being unleashed on all of Ukraine's top weapon systems that are coming from the West. These guys aren't necessarily the people firing the HIMARS. They're not entrusted with, with the key decisions. And, and so you see this Ukrainian force, again, able to push back, as Greg said, some of the major Russian attacks, also some major faults in Russian strategy in terms of how high that's been centralized. And the Ukrainians have countered that with actually bringing things down to a much lower level. Uh, but still, it's just not widely enough dispersed throughout the force. And you have the Ukrainians, of course, making strategic decisions to defend places like Bakhmut and Solodar. Uh, in the West, that's raised a lot of questions and concerns. Are these the right fights for the Ukrainians to be taking when they have limited manpower, uh, limited bodies to throw at the Russian lines? We got this question from JR who emails, what's to stop Putin from a missile strike of the reactor four sarcophagus at Chernobyl? We know he's unhinged enough to not care about the fallout in Moscow. And I just want to explain sarco- uh, sarcophagus four is a structure. It's made of steel and concrete and it covers the nuclear reactor number four building of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Saleha, have you heard any concerns uh, around how Chernobyl might be a point of vulnerability? You know, it's really hard to say whether there's a, a firm U.S. intelligence that there is a vulnerability here. I think they're going to be watching pretty much every sign that Chernobyl could introduce a new element to the conflict. Uh, but we'll have to see how this unfolds. Well, let's move from Russia to its southern neighbor, Georgia, where the country's governing party said it's withdrawing draft legislation that inspired mass protests over press freedoms and political dissent. The proposed legislation would have required any nonprofit or media organization that receives more than 20 percent of its funding from foreign sources to register as a, quote, agent of foreign influence. Nika Melia is a leader of Georgia's opposition party. Whatever the governing party does is absolutely against the Georgians' will. So, uh, whenever uh, the ruling party uh, contradicts the whole nation, the victory is uh, just around the corner. Jack, why did this legislation face so much pushback from people in Georgia? Well, you, you see a split in Georgia, right, between a, a younger class of people who were more turned west, more towards the European Union, uh, and of course the ruling party that's in power, the, the Georgian dream uh, that's beholden to a, a billionaire pro-Russian former president in Bedina Ivanashvili, uh, who's really tried to move the country more towards Russia, uh, hasn't taken a position favoring the Ukrainians, even though if you walk through the streets of Tbilisi, 
all you see are, are Ukrainian flags. It's, it's certainly a popular public mobilization towards the West and towards Ukraine. Um, you know, I think this is, again, a major moment for, for the Georgians. I mean, maybe almost like a, a mini Maidan here. The Georgians themselves are calling this a, a revolution. They've been dancing in the streets through special forces raids, through nightsticks, through tear gas, uh, through hoses. But the question is going to be just how hard uh, do the Russians crack down? Do they come in to support the Georgians in any major way? We, we haven't really seen that yet, but it's tricky for Putin historically because this is one of his worst nightmares, right? Sort of a, a color revolution in the flavor of the 2008 Rose Revolution in Georgia. That led, of course, to the Russian intervention uh, in the war over the separatist provinces, which were still separate uh, and pro-Russian. Uh, of course, the, the issue in Ukraine in 2014, the Euromaidan protests that coincided with the Russian intervention there. So Putin's gonna have to walk a fine line between how far he can go to support this government and how much manpower he has when uh, he's fighting in Ukraine, a full-scale war. Well, and when we look at this legislation that got so much pushback in Georgia and a Russian law that passed in 2012 targeting nonprofits and journalists. How much similarity is there between the two? It's it's almost uh, identical. I mean, this is a law basically, as you said, Jen, requiring NGOs, media organizations that receive foreign funding uh, to register as foreign agents. The, the Russian counterpart law has forced many media organizations out of the country. Uh, they're broadcasting uh, in with podcasts, but they have to carry this label at the beginning of every podcast. If you listen to a Medusa podcast, one of those Russian or, uh, media organizations, it always starts with this label of, of being a foreign agent. So this is kind of the government's way to potentially cut out influences that it sees as, as foreign, uh, maybe pro-Western. Uh, and certainly it's just going to be a, a source of a lot of heartache and, and heartburn in, in the Georgian streets, as we've seen in the last few days. Georgian protesters insisting they're going to keep going despite this law getting struck down. They're going to protest for 12 more days in the Rustaveli. That's that's Georgia's main square. Um and uh, basically, that's for the 12 clauses for European Union membership. So just a, a major split in the direction of, of where George is going here. I want to move on to some news out of Mexico. Last Friday, four U.S. citizens were kidnapped at gunpoint in Matamoros, Mexico, just over the border near Brownsville, Texas. When authorities found the group on Tuesday, two of them were dead. Officials say this may be a case of mistaken identity by Mexican cartels. Saleha, what do we know about why these Americans were traveling to Mexico and what happened? Yeah, uh, so it looks like that they went from Brownsville, Texas in cars into Mexico, the northeastern border of Mexico, and uh, gunmen fired at the cars. Like you said, uh, it looks like a misidentification of who these people were. Two of the Americans survived. They're getting medical treatment. Two of them did die. Their bodies are being repatriated. Um, you know, they weren't directly targeted, but what this incident has done is it has shed light on on a lot of unsolved disappearances in Mexico. The number is quite shocking. More than 100,000 people, uh, Mexicans and, and foreigners who are traveling and coming in, have disappeared and no explanation has been given to those families. Well, the killing has become a flashpoint for U.S.-Mexico relations. Some Republican lawmakers are demanding the Biden administration declare Mexican cartels to be terrorist groups, and some have called for U.S. military intervention. Saleha, how is the Mexican government responding to this? 
Yeah, you're right. You know, we've heard from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina and a couple of other lawmakers from Congress saying that they want to put Mexico on notice and introduce legislation that would classify some Mexican drug cartels as foreign terrorist groups. Mexican uh, President uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO as we call him, uh, he rebuked this very strongly. He said that Mexico will not permit any foreign government to intervene in their territory, much less the government's armed forces. So there is a delicate relationship between the two countries, shared borders, shared um, economic commerce, and uh, now we have this new um, wrinkle being added to that. So we'll have to see what happens next. You know, a lot. it takes a lot for Congress to pass this kind of legislation. Um, maybe we'll see some U.S. officials go down to Mexico to try to resolve this. Well, the Associated Press obtained a copy of a, quote, apology letter through Tamaulipas State Police, and the letter claims to be from the cartel responsible for the killings. Jack, what can you tell us about this letter? Yeah, the the Gulf Cartel is basically saying that they're going to turn in members responsible for the kidnapping and and murder of of those two Americans. And they've enclosed a photo of five cartel members basically face down on the concrete saying they're responsible. Now, now this is an effort to pass it off on uh, a splinter group within the cartel. They're calling the Scorpions Group. Uh, So it's not clear if this is sort of a blame-shifting effort from the cartel uh, and how far that Mexican law enforcement investigation uh, that, of course, Saleha mentioned looking at this as, as a turf battle uh, is going to go. But but certainly, I think the political fire over this, as we mentioned, the Lindsey Graham comments, uh, the potential for this to flare up into a 2024 uh, issue with, with the border being a major thorn in the side of Biden's foreign policy that that certainly Republicans, uh, Republican lawmakers and candidates are going to pick at, uh, this drama certainly isn't over. Well, and Saleha, just contextualize this within the broader U.S.-Mexico relationship. As you said, there are so many connections between the two countries. How would you describe the relationship at this moment? You know, before all of this really started and before we saw the uh, GOP lawmakers calling for military intervention into Mexico, it was a closer relationship. There was a lot of, you know, friends shoring. Mexico was part of the friend shoring agreement for supply chains. Uh, it's a shared uh, economy. A Democratic uh, administration had brought in softer language on some of the immigration, illegal immigration, illegal immigration problems from the preceding presidency. But now uh, I think there are, you know, there were heading into uh, more uh, election can- presidential election candidates emerging here in the United States. The Mexico border issue has been a hot-button issue across our electric here in America. And so anything about drug cartels bringing in opioids, uh, and uh, then, of course, if you have this imagery of Americans being killed over the border, it's triggering. So it is, it is definitely complicating matters for the two countries. Let's turn now to COVID news. This week, the House Oversight Committee held a hearing on how COVID first emerged. Former CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield spoke about his long-held belief that the coronavirus was leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Based on my initial analysis of the data, I came to believe, and I still believe today, that it indicates that COVID-19 more likely was the result of an accidental lab leak than a result of a natural spillover event. This conclusion is based primarily on the biology of the virus itself, including the rapid high infectivity for human-to-human transmission, which would then predict rapid evolution of new variants, as well as a number of other important factors, which also include the unusual actions in and around Wuhan. 
Wuhan in the fall of 2019. This comes after last week's report from the Department of Energy that reported with low confidence the virus may have emerged from a Wuhan lab. We got this question from Kate. Why is the Energy Department involved with researching Wuhan? Saleha, what can you tell us? Yeah, so the two prevailing theories that are have been circulating for the last couple of years is that it was a leak from a lab in China, which the Chinese government has vociferously disputed, or humans being exposed to an infected animal. Uh, COVID-19, they're saying, most likely came from a lab leak, not from a human exposure. But the interesting thing about these um, the hearings that we just had in, in Congress was that science took a total backseat on the issue. What they're concerned about is how hard it's going to be to know what happened. There's no conclusive evidence that it was a lab leak. And all of the witnesses that were there did agree on one thing, that knowing how COVID-19 originated is important to protecting the world from future pandemics. So some of the panel members and witnesses were saying that it's not about assigning blame. We can't bring back 7 million people who have died of this, but it might prevent 7 million deaths in the future if we know where this came from. Well, and to get to Kate's question, Jack, why is the Energy Department involved with researching this? Well, this is a, a whole of government effort to to look at how this this spread. The DOE, of course, believing this this is a potential lab leak, but but they're contradicted by several other agencies, including the National Intelligence Council, believing that it spread from animals to humans. Now, now the problem on both sides, right, is that the evidence is incomplete. We don't actually have samples from the animals themselves, and we don't have any evidence that the Wuhan lab was developing a precursor to COVID nineteen. So. In, in the absence of evidence, it seems like politics has really re-entered the picture in a major way here. Mm. Well, staying in China, Chinese President Xi Jinping begins an unprecedented third term as president today. The unanimous vote was largely ceremonial and puts him on track for a lifetime of power. And this comes as tensions remain high for U.S.-China relations. On Tuesday, China's new foreign minister, Chen Gang, came out swinging. He delivered a stern and wide-ranging rebuke of U.S. policies in his first press conference in the new role. If the United States does not hit the brake but continue to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing, and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. In his press conference, Chen also said the Biden administration's policies are trying to, quote, contain and suppress China in all respects. Jack, again, this was Chen's first appearance as foreign minister. What did you make of this tone? It was. And and if this were 10 years ago, probably everyone in Washington would have freaked out. But the way that Chin is talking, this sort of wolf warrior style of diplomacy, is basically dinner table talk for the Chinese Communist Party these days. I mean, we heard Chinese previous foreign minister uh, Wang Yi, of course, at the Munich Security Conference just a few weeks ago, saying that uh, Washington had blown up with hysteria over that Chinese balloon. Uh, And it just seems like now we're in a situation, unfortunately, where there's not a lot of room for diplomacy. Uh, Chinese and American officials at top levels after the cancellation of the Blinken trip to China over that balloon, now we're just really talking through press headlines. And and when we were talking to folks at the Munich Security Conference just a few weeks ago, uh, there was just frustration on the American side that the Chinese weren't picking up the phone, uh, that when you actually get them in a, in a room, such as uh, Wang Yi's conversation with, with Blinken at that conference, uh, or even Secretary Lloyd Austin's conversations with his Chinese counterpart, 
They'll smile, nod, and go back to the status quo. Mm. What else did we learn from this press conference other than the warnings to the U.S.? Well, I mean, this is sort of a, a significant push for China to, to kind of pursue their own policy track. I mean, they've, they've said in, in recent weeks, and, and Chin Gang has said, his, his predecessor has said, uh, they're searching for a peaceful solution uh, to the Ukraine conflict. The Ukrainians, of, of course, uh, denied their, their efforts, uh, pushed back on that. Uh, but it just sort of seems like China, again, is just continuing this trajectory that we saw dating back to the, the Communist Party Congress in September of last year uh, to surround Xi Jinping uh, with more hawkish advisors. So this is a situation, again, where it's a little bit more of a, a bob and weave tit for tat. Both sides are going to be watching each other uh, in the rearview mirror, looking at the headlines, but not necessarily a lot of uh, talk back and forth. Well, State Department spokesperson Ned Price reacted to the Chinese foreign minister's comments on Wednesday. The United States does not seek conflict. Uh, the United States uh, seeks uh, a relationship with the PRC that has a floor, that has guardrails, uh, and that ultimately is a relationship that uh, has measures in place to prevent competition from veering into conflict. Uh, so, Leah, the U.S. is also closely watching the moves and alliance between China and Russia. What are they watching there and how are they preparing as that relationship evolves? Yeah, they are really watching closely whether China is uh, about to provide more military support to Russia. Uh, China has openly uh, has not openly made any kind of uh, statement aligning itself with the West. And by that void, uh, they are seen to be uh, aligning themselves with Russia in this war. Um, and it has led to a lot of uh, strife and distrust between the U.S. and China. Uh, a lot of other issues are coming up. We've heard from our uh, DNI Avril Haines uh, earlier. You know, last week she told this uh, the Senate that you know there's concerns about TikTok and the dangers that are posed to uh, how d- they can get Americans' data through that. There's a threat of war over Taiwan. Um, and China's role in producing uh, fentanyl, which is killing thousands of Americans every year. So these dueling narratives between what China is seeing and saying and what America is seeing and saying, and as Jack alluded to, this battle playing out in headlines, has gotten the two countries stuck in a negative feedback loop. Uh, But you know what? They're still each other's top trade partners. So whatever the U.S. does against Russia and whatever China does uh, for Russia, these two countries, the United States and China, can't really separate themselves when they are the two largest economies who are so interdependent. Well, we want to note in Haiti, the aid group Doctors Without Borders says it's been forced to temporarily close its hospital and the Cité Soleil part of Port-au-Prince. This is an area that's deeply poor and economically depressed and very violent. Recent gang violence in the capital has killed dozens. The aid group noted that large numbers of stray bullets have hit the hospital compound and that it's nearly impossible for the sick and injured to reach the institution for care. We'll bring you more on that story here on 1A. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited the Middle East this week, stopping in Egypt and making an unannounced visit to Iraq. Perhaps the most high-profile stop, though, was in Israel, and that's where he met Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Saleha, what were some of the key talking points between the two? 
So uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he traveled to Israel on Thursday. The key points we're talking about, Iran and escalation in the occupied West Bank. Uh, The Defense Secretary wanted to uh, re-emphasize the U.S. commitment to Israel's self-defense and also the U.S. security assistance that's already been pledged. I think it's something around 38 or $40 billion in the memorandum of understanding. Um, but also looking at the consequences, you know, we're again talking about Russia, the consequences of Russia's expanding military cooperation with Iran and what Israel can do about that. And then, of course, they're always there to discuss together the regional security challenges um, in the Middle East. Now, the meeting between the two men had to be moved due to massive protests and a planned day of resistance over the Israeli government's judicial overhaul. So, Leha, what kind of pressure is Netanyahu under right now from within his own country? Yeah, this has been going on for quite a few weeks now, I think uh, maybe months. Uh, The Israeli right-wing government has a plan to weaken the country's Supreme Court and some other democratic institutions, and that has created somewhat of a crisis, a constitutional crisis in Israel. Uh, There's fears that the confrontation between the government and the opposition, opposition could escalate even more. Uh, We've already seen Israeli military getting involved, hundreds of reserve Air Force pilots and members of special forces units and intelligence officers are saying that they won't serve, you know, the Israeli government if this plan to weaken the Supreme Court is implemented. Uh, And, you know, Defense Secretary Austin, he dealt with this. He landed in Tel Aviv on Thursday morning. There was protesting happening at the airport and he did have to cut his trip short there. We got this email from Martin who says, if anyone out there believes that there's anything that the U.S. can do to discourage the creeping annexation of the West Bank by Israeli settlers, I have a bridge for sale. The U.S. and Israel jointly developed some of the most sophisticated military and technical hardware in the world. Any rupture between the two would free Israel to sell to its rivals, such as China. They know we would never risk that. Jack, I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's fascinating, right? Israel has been seeking out a relationship with with the Chinese and the Russians. The Russians have built a railroad uh, in Israel. Uh, There's port infrastructure that the Chinese have been working on. So as, of course, you have this this rock-solid partnership, or whatever you call it, uh, between the United States and Israel, $3 billion in in military aid each year, uh, you still have kind of this this creeping relationship uh, with the Russians and the Chinese, uh, a fear of actually outright condemning the Russians for the invasion in Ukraine, uh, in Israel. So uh, this is just going to be kind of a back and forth that the U.S. is is really watching, not just with Israel, but throughout the Middle East, uh, as the U.S. kind of refocuses on the Indo-Pacific, but also, of course, looking at the war in Ukraine, uh, they basically have to kind of guard their flanks in this region. Well, I want to move now to news out of Tunisia. Migrants from sub-Saharan Africa are fleeing the country and facing violence, discrimination, and arrests at the hands of the Tunisian government. The government is rounding up migrants who do not have adequate paperwork, and many have been thrown out of their homes and jobs. This comes weeks after Tunisian President Kai Sayed spoke to national security advisors and said migrants from sub-Saharan Africa would change Tunisia into, quote, only an African country that has no affiliation to Arab and Islamic nations, end quote. Jack, what is happening? Why this crackdown on migrants now? Well, this this comes really as part of an, a real author, authoritarian turn from Kai Saeed, uh, the president of Tunisia, uh, calling for urgent measures to uh, get uh, immigrants out of the country that are coming from sub-Saharan 
African countries, uh, fear of basically violence. Uh, so you just see kind of this this crackdown and, and fears of democratic backsliding in, in the region. Something, of course, the State Department and the EU is watching very closely and very carefully. Um, now, I mean, we'll sort of see how this situation resolves itself. It's it's not clear that uh, the Tunisian authorities have really figured out, other than uh, you know these mass arrests and, and detentions, really what to do with the problem. A lot of these migrants, of course, coming from Algeria, Libya, places around the region. So it seems like sort of kind of putting a Band-Aid over an open wound here uh, politically and, and uh, speaking about the situation. So uh, Saeed's going to have to figure out how to, how to deal with this, but also not earn the ire uh, of the West as, as they fear about this democratic backsliding that, that just seems to have intensified here. Well, and Jack, why are there so many migrants from sub-Saharan Africa and Tunisia? Well, you see, of course, um, a major conflict uh, throughout the region. Of course, Algeria and Libya uh, have been in a major state of peril. Libya, I mean, for basically over a decade uh, since the war broke out uh, around the Arab Spring. Uh, you see, of course, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, the, the situation getting worse with, with terror groups. So just a lot of migration around the region. Tunisia has, has been relatively stable uh, in the region uh, for the past decade or so, even as they've had political turmoil. Uh, but you just wonder how long that's going to hold up now. Well, I would love to hear from each of you a story that you're working on or perhaps something you're keeping an eye on. Maybe it's a story you think hasn't gotten enough attention this week and you want our listeners to know about it. Saleha, I'll come to you first. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the big things is Elon Musk. Everyone likes to read about him. And uh, the U.S. government is playing this terrific game of whack-a-mole, trying to figure out uh, how to deal with his five very large and influential companies uh, that the government is trying to figure out whether they can or should regulate them. And I think the, the relationship between the U.S. government and this really powerful multi-billionaire is really, really interesting, and everyone should read about it. And Jack, you get the last word here. Well, we were talking a little bit about that quote-unquote limitless partnership between Russia and, and China, but we've seen China basically hedge their bets on, on sending full-fledged military support to the Russians. This is raising a lot of questions in Western circles. Is she hedging his bets on the Putin regime? Uh, we'll have to find out. That's Jack Datch. He covers the Pentagon and national security at Foreign Policy. And Saleha Mosin, senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. Jack Saleha, thanks. And earlier in the program, we heard from Greg Myrie, national security correspondent at NPR. Is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? And to round up the roundup this week, a memorial. When did she get to be a beauty? When did he the actor Heim Topol charmed generations with his portrayal of Tevya, the long-suffering milkman in Fiddler on the Roof. Topol died this week. Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, called Topol, quote, one of the most outstanding Israeli actors who filled the movie screens with his presence and above all entered deep into our hearts. Here's Haim Topol talking and singing about his performance in Fiddler on the Roof in an interview recorded in 2017. If I were a rich man, the milkman was written it was written in Yiddish, not in English and not in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are translations. The song in, in Israel 
when, when, when we, when we uh, appeared here, uh, it was Luaiti Rothschild. But as I said, in, in America, no one knew who was rich, uh, Rothschild, or Rothschild. So they, they, they turned it to If, if I, I were, were a rich man. All day long, I biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to I'm Topol was 87. If I were a biddy biddy rich, idle diddle 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 man. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. If I were a rich man, all day long I biddy biddy bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. If I were a biddy biddy rich, idle diddle 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 man.